Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 114, recorded on July 10th of 2020. Um, the podcast where we geek out about photo stuff, and this week is a week to geek out. Uh, I'm your host, Don Komarechka, and uh, with me today, I just had to, for this episode, bring back one of my favorite guests, the most common guest, the most frequent guest on this podcast, um, who can dive into the tech specs as good as anybody else I know, possibly better, um, and that uh, is Steve Brazel. So here we have Steve. How, you doing, How are man? you, my friend? I'm well. Uh, we're both sweltering in the heat a little bit, except I've got storms uh, coming in. And so uh, if this podcast does happen to break and weirdly restart partway through, it's because I lost power. Yeah, well, if it does, I will sit here patiently and wait in my 99 degree Fahrenheit, 13% humidity compared to your... What were you, uh, well, 30? we're at 35 Celsius, so it's like it's 90 something yeah. uh, of Fahrenheit, and uh, we're 90% humidity. So yeah, that's, that's storm wonderful. weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, talking about cooking up a storm, uh, let's just get right into the stories and we'll have some pleasantries a little bit later because this storm has been brewing for a long time. This was and a big it, week. This was a this big, was, big week. Exactly. You know, and uh, so a big week for a number of companies, but mainly really Canon kind of steals the show this week. And uh, we have the official release and all the specs and the juicy details. The embargoes have been lifted, etc. on the EOS R5 and the R6. Um, Although the R5 is that flagship sort of I guess you could call it a second-gen mirrorless camera from somebody other than Sony. Um, and uh, 45 megapixels, 8K video capture, next-gen dual-pixel autofocus as well makes the, t- uh, the the headline on DP Review. Um, so we've heard rumblings, we've heard rumors, we, uh, we know a lot about this before it actually came up. But, um, I, I mean, I could... Go, I could run down the spec list. I mean, everybody's clamoring for dual card slots. So yes, you get your CF Express card and your SD card slot in there. Um, a uh, Interestingly, a still only a um, 5.76 million dot uh, EVF, which I thought would have been uh, a point of improvement. Um, well, but, but, you, but I mean, that's still a really good EVF. Oh, it is. It is. But I, I think that compared to all of the other specs this camera is bringing to the table uh, at the R5 level, that that's the one that might have been like seven or eight or nine million dots. I know that right. technology exists to some level out there. I don't know what production quantities are available to build into products. But um, and then you've got uh, at least well, on the- here, let, let me interrupt you on that, because that's yeah. an interesting point. And that is, again, this is a five series camera. So maybe their thought is, if we're going to try and save money on the 5 Series camera, then maybe we, you know, obviously there's going to be sacrifice points. And maybe if they came out at some point with an R1, that's what goes there. Or or bring back the 3 Series, right? The the EOS 3 had uh, eye tracking and some revolutionary technology built into that, but they didn't want to bring it back out when they changed their their naming scheme uh, at the beginning of digital because it was the number first followed by a D, which would be 3D. And, uh, you know, that would 
not be a stereoscopic camera, uh, one would assume. And so uh, I don't know if that's the only reason. I'm sure their marketing people could have worked their way around that. But um, you could have classes above the 5D that uh, that hit into this uh, same ballpark uh, with, you know, slight improvements, advancements. Uh, R5 has 5 gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz built in Wi-Fi. And I've heard of a lot of people using that more frequently on their cameras, especially when they're shooting from home or in their studio and they've got their own Wi-Fi connection. Um, what are you going to say, Steve? I, I, I was just your finger interject. It's got, yeah, I know. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt. Uh, 2.4 and 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, but it also has Bluetooth. And this was the interesting part. It can FTP or SFTP images as they are taking, taken. So if you are a sports shooter, if you're shooting for an agency, if you're shooting for a news outlet, and you've got the connection either through the Wi-Fi or using their wireless transmitter grip, which is expensive as heck, but that wireless transmitter grip adds Ethernet. If you've got that kind of a connection, you can upload these images, FTP or SFTP, in effectively real time. Right. Uh, and that's that's important for some people. Uh, I remember I bought the WFT, which is the, uh, the Wi-Fi uh, uh, transfer right. grip for the uh, 5D Mark II. And they even had two versions of that. Uh, I never used it for that. I actually was trying to get uh, GPS geotagging connectivity on that camera, which you required that grip. And then you had to plug in a separate GPS unit into it. Right. Uh, anyhow, so it was, uh, it was a challenge to get that to, to work in any sense. But as soon as you start to build that technology into the camera itself then it becomes utilized by potentially everybody, or at least there's educators out there that are talking about that functionality more because everybody with that camera has it. You don't need some extra dongle or doodad. Well, and Wi-Fi built in is a, in my opinion, a consumer usable tech uh, instantly. If you are a hobbyist and you're out shooting vacation photos and you get back to your hotel room and you don't want to carry a card reader around, you can Wi-Fi those pictures to your iPad or your laptop, and immediately start editing your pictures easily without card transfer. It's nice. What's interesting to me, there's a couple of things about this camera that, that you know, are the the bullet points. And of course, in, in the DP review article, they mentioned the 45 megapixel sensor. Let's touch on that first. It is an all new sensor. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got to wait and see real world tests and find out how this sensor performs. My guess is it's going to be insanely good. Well, and it was DxO Labs that just admitted that they they messed up on their 1DX Mark III tests of that sensor that made it look not nearly as sparkling as it should have been. Um, on which so, sensor? Uh, the 1DX Mark III. Oh, on the 1DX Mark III. I got you, got you. Right, which is a current flagship sensor from Canon. Right. And so if, if those numbers might have been um, misrepresented and is actually a little bit better than a new sensor, even better, a higher megapixel. I mean, previously in the same class, you had the 5DS, which was a 50 megapixel right. body. Um, and we're not quite at 50, but we're close, like we're in the same ballpark. Um, and I know a lot of people complain that, yeah, for the resolution, it was great, but it didn't perform optimally in high ISO and the throughput was really lacking in terms of the frames per second. And for certain subjects, it was perfect, but it was not a universal person's camera. No. And I I saw when this was announced, the formal announcement and 45 megapixels was confirmed. I saw people saying, oh, finally, Canon has a high res, you know, camera. Well, we've had a high res camera with that one that you just mentioned. Um, this has the same processor as the 1DX Mark III, which is the Dig- Digic X or Digic 10. I'm guessing it's an X. 
but great processor. What I find interesting is it's the first five series with an articulating LCD, stupid little add-on. It's in cheap cameras, but that to me is a huge deal because they've got the articulating LCD, but they're maintaining the weather sealing of a 5D series. It's not as good as a 1D, but it's good. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned the two card slots, which is not a minor thing to me. The biggest complaint I heard about the EOS R was that it had one card slot. That was that was the number one thing everybody chimed in in about. And this has CF Express. I kind of wish it wasn't SD for the other card slot. Yeah, I you know I've been on the fence about this too because if you're going to like if you're going to be using the CF Express card slot, which I think you should, um, you know it offers a huge advantages in speed and potentially capacity as well reliability in some cases but um if you're going to go to buy at least one of those cards i mean keep everything at that same throughput in the same format it's they they, maybe they want to make it backwards compatible oh you can buy the new camera and you don't have to buy a new memory card just buy a new memory card i'd rather just have all of one memory card it's it's like it's like you know i don't want to have to on my phone choose between micro usb lightning or usb c it's the same it's the same thing but the headline also mentions dual pixel AF, which is always an interesting one to me that everybody jumps on that. This is the second gen. The dual pixel AF is arguably some of the best autofocusing that you'll find today, but it's only available in live view. So if you're like me and you don't use live view, because I really can't use live well, view. L- live view is now the pervasive only option, right? Because live view, whether it's on the back of the LCD screen or on uh, your viewfinder, yeah, I guess it's all electronic, true. right? True. Yeah, n- I guess that n- would be true. That'd be. Are we sure of that, though, that the fact that you're using an EVF technically counts as live view? It's mirrorless, so it should. Yep, so it should. you should, and- even if you're looking through a viewfinder, you should be getting dual pixel AF then. And uh, with uh, dual pixel AF, which has existed in some cameras, uh, uh, not mutually bound to dual pixel RAW, because I know that the 1DX Mark II had dual pixel AF, but no dual pixel RAW. And I've been mad at that for the entire time I own that camera. Um, why? Well, n- nobody really found it terribly useful, but I still just wanted extra data. Uh, and now they found some more ways to uh, to apply that data. I saw um, DP reviews. Uh, Chris Jordan, or Chris uh, Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake. Um, Chris and Jordan. Or Chris doing, Jordan. Chris Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They are really one entity uh, at this point. But in 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 their video, they were talking about how you can do some additional um, processing and and functionality when you are shooting with uh, dual pixel raw that I don't think is going to be used by anybody aside from testing to say, oh, well, that that's there. Um, but I'm glad that it's there because that means that it can be built on in the future. And I think that they're doing uh, a fair number of things in the right direction. Uh, the wrong direction was that uh, weird uh, bar on the back of the EOS R that nobody really understood or yep. just kind of got in the way. That's gone. That's gone. That's gone. But this uh, camera, this camera does have, we'll get into the six in a minute, but this camera does have an LCD on the top, which I know some people actually are going to like the dial that's on the R6 better. I kind of like having the LCD for me. I, I love the inverted LCD where like it's black with white lettering and numbering. I just find that just classy and easier to read. easy to see. 
Uh, and I, I've got that on the, um, the Lumix S1H. And I much prefer if the camera body is slightly bigger and there's just more real estate for that top screen, especially when you might be shooting video, um, having statistics and information available there uh, could be very important because you might not be able to start hunting through menus or easily right. seeing things when you're actively rolling, uh, which brings up the video component of Before this, you get into the, the video, can I mention a couple other things? Oh, I'm sure. still Because there's a couple things that are, that are interesting to me. First of all, it also has USB-C just from a body point of view. I do want to mention that. Um, and I guess we also should mention just other standard, just body stuff. And that is the IS, but, but on stills, it shoots 10 bit HEIF now, which is kind of in between raw and JPEG. It's a compressed file, but it's 10 bit it's editable and has a lot of dynamic range capability into it. That's actually to me, a, a very, very big thing to add. They've started rolling that out on their flagship cameras a while ago, and I'm glad right. to see that's continuing. They're not giving up on that. Everybody, it, needs It's almost to like they went bandwidth. with that instead of DNG, which I like, right? I like that they went. It's a format that's quick. I can turn it around quick, but it's editable. But here's the biggest huge announcement body-wise on this camera, and it holds for the six. In-body IS on a Canon mirrorless of five stops plus your lenses that do, say, up to three stops. So those have a bi-directional communication between the, between the lens circuitry and the AF in the body, and those are additive, so you can get up to eight stops of IS. That's I'm not fantastic. sure if it's in practicality you would actually get that, though. I mean, They're using that as an actual marketing. Now, again, nobody knows marketing until you test it, I doubt you're going to go out and tell and make a big deal about you get eight stops of IS because of this bi-directional communication. Everybody's but, I mean, they, they've it. had that. Lumix has had that forever. Sony, I can't remember if they have. Olympus has. Um, but this is not new technology where you've got no, IS No, but it's new lens. to Canon. It's new to Canon. But also, um, most cameras that have an in-body image stabilizer have also been using uh, the pixel shift high-resolution technology. In fact, everybody else has like uh, Sony Olympus Panasonic anybody that has the the in-body image stabilizer can't remember if Fuji does or not but um it's just too many specs to keep in my head all at once when I've got a screaming four-year-old in the house so um I I find that there's no mention in any of this of a high resolution mode uh, at least initially on the release of the camera that's not to say that they can't roll that out in the future um, but I find that to be one of the really cool uses um, for uh, macro photography to take like a 200 megapixel file and throw 90% of it away and get a 20 megapixel file at the end of it that's still very very useful and I have a greater depth of field and so on and so forth yes that's a niche to I was to, just going to gonna say liking. what's the percentage of the market though that is uh, actually clamoring for that well you know a lot of people were looking at sony's implementation over the lumix implementation and thinking well if you want the absolute highest quality in that sony takes 16 shots versus eight um and it, theoretically that's an improvement because you don't have a uh a moiré pattern from uh uh, from the demosaicing of a Bayer pattern because it's all shifted around so much that every pixel has almost like a foveon type quality um, which we're still waiting on that new Foveon sensor from Sigma, by the way. That just reminded me. We're, that's That's been a point of silence that, uh, I don't know. I'm curious. But anyway, uh, back on track here. So um, 
the biggest thing for Canon when they started to really hit it home for affordable, higher resolution um, SLR type cameras with the 5D Mark II was video. And yeah. um, they've kind of been playing second fiddle to other players in that space now, uh, including Lumix and even Blackmagic has some great mirrorless cameras, not necessarily competing on the same class. Uh, but now I think they're, they're, they're beating a really strong drum. Although it's like giving a solo to a tuba. I mean, yes, you can, but I don't really want 8K raw uh, because the amount of processing capability to, to do anything with that. I mean, yes, there are certain people that want that, but those are the people that are spending as much as my house costs on a camera. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, arguably, if you're going to shoot 8K 30p for 30 minutes, which is what you can do here in either RAW or H.265. And I'll get into the H.265 in a minute because that's a totally separate thing. Then the the argument would be you're going to need such a large CF Express card to begin with. You don't have two. You're not going to be able to keep up on an SD card doing that. It would be my guess. You're going to go get a red. You're going to, I mean, if you really have that need for 8K, because you can't deliver it, right? You're shooting 8K for cropping capability to crop it down and deliver it probably as 4K, then you're going to go get a red. I don't, I don't see that this is the camera, but. Or, or for, for pixel binning, you know, but yes. um, I, I've got, uh, I, I've got a number of, uh, of people in documentary film space that are shooting um, with uh, 6K cameras. And uh, I was chatting like the with Black Magic. Is a great it, well, exactly. Well, this, this was a, a, a red that uh, that this guy had, but um, he was saying, you know, I, I have no need to go to 8K until I'm required to buy a project, right? right? I have no desire to go there right now because everything that we deliver is 4K. Uh, everything that we will be delivering for the foreseeable future is going to be 4K. And if I'm shooting above that, it's for slight cropping, recomposing, and uh, making sure that when we do the edits, that it becomes uh, more manageable when you compress that down to a smaller resolution and you can't see it as well. I, I mean, portrait photographers are doing the same thing with medium format cameras forever. Well, and by the uh, way, once you step to 8K, you just changed your entire workflow because the computer oh, yeah. you're working on may not be able to even handle editing those those files. You can shoot 4K in 120 that's actually very usable. It's 10-bit 422. Well, let's say you don't have to shoot it at 120 frames per second. You can you shoot 4K to, at less can. than that. You, you can if you want to do slow-mo. Uh, C-Log HDRPQ. Um, it's got a lot of a lot of nice features. Here's my, my worry on this body for me. So when I go shoot a show, let's say I'm shooting an all-day festival. On my 5D Mark IV, I put a battery in. And on that battery, I might get 1,100 photos out of it and we're just talking stills right not even talking 8k 30p right this is rated if you're using the lcd at 320 shots if you're yeah using but the sepa ratings are really misleading because okay but still it's not a thousand you're not going to jump from 320 to a thousand Absolutely, you can. If you're shooting rapid fire, continuous burst, SEPA ratings, I can't remember the exact specs, but it's like, you know, one shot a minute with the screen always on and fire. Yeah, they, they differentiate here, like you that. know, the EVF at 120, 60 frames per second, you get 330 shots. But still, I, I'm really hoping, again, they have the battery grip. I don't like battery grips, but 
I'm really, really hoping that the battery life is better than what I'm seeing here. I, I hope so too. I, and I can pretty well guarantee. This is not a cheap camera. This is for this thirty nine hundred dollars US for the body only. And if you get it with the, the RF twenty four to one hundred five f four L, which is a phenomenal lens, I love that range. It's five thousand dollars. Yep. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that that's a good lens. I use the EF equivalent. I use the, uh, the Lumix S equivalent in that same focal range and, and aperture. Uh, and I just find that's a very good work, uh, working like a workhorse lens. Um, that's the but, vacation lens to me. You take yeah, one lens with you on vacation. It's a 24 to 105. Yeah. Uh, of course I took, uh, the 24 to 105 and my backup lenses were a fisheye lens and the Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens. And then the 24 to 105 broke on me. And so oh, I had a super macro lens and a fisheye lens as my other options. It was uh, entertaining, to say the least. Now, it, this piggybacks on, uh, or at, rather the EOS R6 piggybacks on the R5 announcement, both announced at the, um, at the same time. And similar in some regards, you mentioned the dial at the top. You don't have a traditional mode dial on the R5, but you have that on the R6. And no um, LCD on the top. Exactly, no LCD. You uh, you go down to twenty megapixels, which is interesting because um, it seems almost like we've left that number in the past in yeah, full frame cameras. Way. I mean, twenty four uh, for a lot of base model cameras is where we are. And to go back down to twenty, and yeah, it's not a huge shift there, but um, it would seem almost like a camera going there would have to have such specialized, amazing pixels. Like when we had the reduction in uh, resolution from the um, Lumix GH5S, which went down to 12 megapixels in order to improve its video quality because they were much better pixels. Um, It just seems weird to go all the way down to 20 megapixels on the R6 body. Yeah, I agree. It by the way, it's the same same frames per second. So they're they're both going to shoot 20 frames per second electronic shutter, 12 frames per second mechanical shutter you you drop to 20 megapixels on the six and you lose the 8k video well it doesn't have 8k worth of pixels no it doesn't but my whole thing is if you had stayed around 25 or like a like a 5d mark 4 if you stayed around you know 30 ish i would have been okay because moving from a 5d4 to an r6 it would have been a lateral movement file size and and picture wise um, dropping to 20 is the one thing that's troubling to me on the six. And it's uh, weird because it, it, it doesn't, video. yeah, it doesn't really matter in, in most practical senses. I, I shot with 18, 21 and 20 megapixel cameras for a very long time. And anything in that range has been it's good. It's plenty to work with. It's plenty. But I, I was, uh, when I went from a 5d Mark two to a one DX, which was 21 megapixels down to 18 megapixels. I was pretty sure that those pixels were going to be rocking it on the one DX compared to the 5d Mark two. And I was right. right. And I was, I guess I was giving up a little bit of resolution, but I was really holding it uh, together with the quality of those pixels and more does not necessarily equal better. However, that was because it was a flagship product that I was going into and it was, uh, you know, it was marketing it as uh, as such the best quality pixels that you could really get for a camera of its type and now if you're going from mid-class to mid-class or going up and down slightly within those areas you don't really want to sacrifice anything when you're making an upgrade right well i agree and the pixels here actually do matter the fact that it's you know less than half the resolution 
is clearly giving it an ISO boost as well because it will do double it. I mean, you're not going to go to 200,000 or 200,004, whatever it is, 204,000 ISO, but it'll do double the ISO. And my guess is the ISO performance will be better because those pixels are larger. They're going to be better pixels. It is, it's effectively the same sensor. And I keep people seeing, I keep seeing people say it's the same sensor as a 1DX Mark III. And that's not actually how the wording is. What, what, I'm hearing is it's a sensor similar to the 1DX3. I don't know how, you know, spot on it is. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of layered technology in terms of image quality, the sensor, but then there's an analog to digital conversion and lots of other stuff that's built into the mix that ends up giving you the image quality that you get, uh, and the image processor and so on. But, so, but, uh, it's a, but it's a lot less money when you consider... It's still a great sensor. It's the same autofocus system as the 1DX3, as the R5, the same processor, the same in-body image stabilization. Same EVF, same everything. The same EVF. You get uh, UHD 4K at 60, 10-bit, 422, C-Log, HDRPQ. Um, There's a lot. You get two slots. Granted, they're both SD. You don't get 5 gigahertz, but you get 2.4 and you get Bluetooth Battery is about the same, same battery grip, although you don't have the, the you know, other grip, the, the wireless grip. Um, and it's way less money. This is a really compelling body. Yeah, $2,500. Now, that's a lot of money. Um, I, you know, it, it's hard to jump into a system, especially right now, and a lot of photographers aren't getting a whole lot of gigs at the moment, but you might be able to sell your existing camera and cut that price down considerably and say, okay, well, now... Now it's time we, we do this mirrorless dance, right? Right. You get like, for me, I have a 5D4 and a 5D3. Replacing my 5D3 with this is really enticing. $1,400 difference. And by the way, you can get this with the 24 to 105 for 3600 So still a $1,400 difference. But Steve, you- uh, if, if you are going to be jumping platforms, um, would you consider jumping brands? Right, because if you're gonna give up the whole flapping mirror design, you can adapt those old lenses to the new Canon system, to the Lumix system, to the Sony system, to Correct. pretty well every system. Um, so, what would compel you to buy this over anything else that's on the market, like a Lumix S1, uh, a Sony A7, uh, or anything else that's uh, tickling your fancy? I suppose I'll have to wait to see more images. And I've seen some images from the R6. In fact, I've seen a good amount of images from the R6. They're on my computer from a friend uh, that's going to be on behind the shot. And so far, what I'm seeing from this body, uh, I like it. Again, I haven't seen shots from the R5, but at least the R6. So far, what I'm seeing, I'm absolutely loving in detail. I'm loving in color quality. Uh, I'm assuming because they were shot, the ones that I have, uh, they were shot on a, a pre-release body, so I'm assuming that they were shot in JPEG or HEIF. Um, I, I doubt that they were shot raw, although they theoretically could have been. Um, I'm just liking it. I don't see necessarily a need to move to a different platform. And here's the other thing, and this is going to sound weird, but the big thing to me is I need to hold one of these in my hand. Because the reason I wanted, by the way, I've been disappointed with my Canon gear for a while at times. And part of the reason that I didn't go with a Sony when all my friends bought A7R3s or whatever is because they're not comfortable in my hand. When you hold those bodies, which are smaller, 
than a DSLR and you hold the grip and your fingers go in, the lenses come out from the mount and flange outward and then go forward. That flange rubs my knuckles. Interesting. And I mean, it's really, really tight. My fingers are like going in towards the mount under that flange. I want to know what this body feels like in my hand. That When I first picked up uh, uh, Lumix S1, and the S1R, and, uh, are they're pretty much the same feel for the bodies. Um, it was like built like a tank. It had a grip that I would never lose. It just felt good in my hands. And when I was shooting with it for hours, I didn't get tired of it. Uh, and yes, that's I was a bigger body than the Sony's, for example, though. It, it is. It's a bigger body, and it's small is important to to some degree. I love shooting with a Lumix GX9, tiny little body. I'm not going to have that kind of a grip, but I'm not expecting it either. Right. If I'm right. if I'm going to go for a bigger class camera, sometimes ever so slightly bigger to be more ergonomically comfortable is a useful thing because it's all about usability. And when I walk around a, a festival, I may be at a festival, no joke, I may be at a festival for 12, 13, 14 hours, three days in a row Yeah, with that camera in my hand most of the time. So for me, ergonomics and feel in my hand is way more important than it is for a standard recreational consumer shooter. And you can't compare that on a spec sheet or no, uh, an analysis of a sensor or that the, the numbers don't tell you that. And Correct. so you're, you're right to say, yeah, you know, get something in your hands. In fact, Steve, um, when it's safe to go out to a camera store again and actually pick up, pick up cameras, uh, I mean, pick them all up. Uh, you know, have have a an R5 or R6 in one hand and a S1 in the other and in your third hand put a sony a7r like i mean juggle them around a little bit figuratively not literally but uh just see what the comparison is because if you're having like a, a hands-on experience in isolation it really doesn't tell you how they really feel and make that direct comparison no, and i'm so. a, I, i'm on a cps program canon professional services so i can always get a loaner or i can always rent a body and test it but for me to jump from canon even though if I bought if I bought one of the R series, whether it be the R, the R5, or the R6, I would need to really gain something pronounced for me to move because I'm comfortable with Canon. I like Canon. I would have to really get something, you know, just that I don't see right now. There, the stuff I'm seeing, even a friend of mine does video constantly on on just a regular R, and it's just shockingly good. Well, I'll tell you what you won't see on the EF mount or any other mount besides the RF mount right now, Steve. And that's a 600 and 800 millimeter, easily hand-holdable super telephoto lens, right? For less than $1,000. Well, I mean, that, that I mean, so the price point of the, the 800 um, was, uh, what was it, 899 $899. And the 600 millimeter is 699 So um, these lenses were kind of shocking for me when we were hearing the rumors because number one you don't get a super telephoto lens for that price but you also don't get them at f11 uh because previously that would have negated any ability to autofocus using phase detect autofocus on uh, traditional digital SLRs. Um, So we've overcome that with uh, maybe it's the dual pixel AF systems. Maybe it's smarter, uh, you know, engines and I think it's uh, a number of things. F11 lets them make it smaller, lets Mm -hmm. them make it, you know, shorter, lets them make it lighter, right? 
they're using. Well, and de- they could have done that before, but it would have always been manual focus, right? If well, the auto, all, if they couldn't make autofocus in this lens, they couldn't make this lens before. Really? Yeah, well, if you have, um, it was like uh, the, the 1D series bodies would focus to f8, and initially it was only at their very center autofocus point uh, using face detection autofocus. And then if you were to add a teleconverter or anything into that and push it to f11, then you would lose the ability to autofocus entirely on those lenses. In, that's interesting. So, interesting. Very interesting. Well, a couple things. First of all, these are DO lenses. Uh, diffractive, diffractive optics, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you brought up something when we did our image critique thing the other day with uh, yeah, this Bergman, was in, this was in the after show <laughs> that that I had not heard of, and I went and looked this up. These lenses are collapsible up to, to save twenty five percent in length, and I think I figured it out. And that is, you extract. And I'm going to ask when I interview this this person on Monday uh, for a show release on Thursday. I think they expand to be used and collapse for storage. I don't yes. know that you shoot them in that way. No, and I don't think you can. It's like those cheap kit lenses. I, I say right. cheap, I should say inexpensive because I've got the uh, the Lumix 12 to 32 kit lens, which is, I think, the least expensive lens in the lineup. And it's a collapsible design. When it's collapsed to a pancake, the camera just warns you, hey, rotate the lens to its using position. And we then you we do should that probably explain to people what we're talking about. And that is, you know, the old 100 to 400, instead of a pump. dial focus... It had a push-pull focus. Yes. Well, this lens has that kind of look, but it's not focus. It's just collapsible for storage. Yeah, and so there is a a focusing ring on it, so I could kind of tell it wasn't that. But then there was this weird extension on the backside that I just couldn't place until I started reading into it, and it is collapsible for easier storage. Uh, But that also brings up the... I don't want to say design flaw of the dust pump, the EF 100 to 400, uh, 4.5 to 5.6 L lens, but that lens, um, because the, the, basically it's a larger cylinder, uh, that moves over a smaller one to extend further outward. And there's a little friction dial on it so that you can dial it in and lock it into a specific spot. Um, but you have a massive amount of air that gets sucked into the lens when it's fully extended because there's more internal volume at that time. That was the problem with the 100 to 400 was they got dirty because as you push and pulled to focus, you were sucking dust in. That's why it's colloquially called the dust pump. Yeah. A lot of Canon glass gets gets a nickname after uh, after a while in the field, especially if it's notable. Um, and so this one, because it looks like a similar design, the only concern I have is that uh, the ceiling against atmospheric contamination might not be good enough to make it survive long term. Well, but, they, are, they are not weather sealed. Exactly. At yeah. all. And by the way, even though this is an RF, these are an RF lens design, so they'll work fine on an R, an R5, or an R6, there is no claim that I have seen, and it mentions this in the article that there's no claim of this. We talked about on the R5 and the R6 that with the right lenses, the in-lens IS can be effectively added to the in-body image stabilization. And these are image stabilized lenses, these new telephotos. They are, but there is no claim that these actually are added to the the in-body stabilization of the the five and six. I'm assuming they probably will be, 
but they don't mention that, and you kind of think that they would. Yeah, um, that might be a selling point to some degree. AF coverage is less. You're only getting 60% by 40% on AF coverage. And by the way, these are STM lenses. They are not USM lenses. So it's going to be a much slower autofocus probably. Well, no, I mean, uh, STM doesn't necessarily mean slower. It means that they they are capable of sh- uh, shorter steps than the old ultrasonic motors. Um, the, uh, the, well, the STM, mode- I don't think you can, if you're in autofocus mode, you can't override it either. So if you're in autofocus mode, you can't grab the ring. It has to be a USM motor lens, I think. So well, that if USM you're in autofocus to- mode, do all, also grab and turn the lens. I Turn don't the focus know. Ring. USM stood for ultrasonic motor, which Correct. basically meant that you could as opposed hear to it. single step. Um, well, uh, ultrasonic meaning that you the, the motor was silent to our ears. It might annoy your dog, but it was uh, it was its operation was outside of our hearing range. Um, at least my understanding it, on Canon lenses, though, was you can't if you're if the switch is in, in AF, you can't grab the focus ring and turn it if it's an STM lens. I could be wrong, but this was my understanding. That it I had to be a USM think- lens to do that. I think we're going to have to, you know, lead it to the audience to give us the answer on yeah, that. Correct. One, I don't me have if it I'm in wrong. front of me. Um, but regardless, you're getting um, a lens that is capable of extreme focal lengths, uh, where our ISO sensitivities are going through the roof compared to what they were even five years ago. Uh, which means that f11, especially if you're just outside in, in bright light doing the fair weather uh, wildlife photographer thing, which you probably would want to have a convenient lens like this. No one else has made anything similar that ha- I mean, yeah, we had the um, uh, the reflex uh, mirror lenses that were like telescopes right. for your camera uh, before, but they didn't have autofocus and obviously not image stabilization. So uh, interesting times. Uh, the mirrorless market, I did not see uh, facilitating this kind of lens design when I was talking about flange distances and rear optic diameters and things like that. I didn't realize that something like this would also be possible when we make that transition. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy about that. Now, there was um, another lens that Canon has uh, announced as well, piggybacking off that announcement, because uh, it's just one thing off the back of another, off the back of another here in uh, in this uh, Canon series. The RF It was 85- a big announcement. They announced a lot. Yeah. And I I've, I mean, I, I hope they do well during the pandemic, but I mean, it it seems uh, like I guess it had to be announced and, and maybe they're going to gain market share when uh, the market is kind of waning right now. But um, we'll see. Uh, the, the new RF 85 millimeter F2 macro IS STM, they say, is ideal for close ups and portraits. Now, Steve, before we go any further here, I got to get on my soapbox okay. about that word macro because this lens gets to 0.5 times magnification which is decidedly not macro, which is one times magnification or one to one life size magnification. And it bothers me to no end when people throw the word out, especially when they do it on a fixed focal length lens. People have been putting the word macro on zoom lenses for the longest time. And it's kind of generally assumed Sigma started doing it. Uh, My uh, uh, Lumix uh, 24 to 105 does it. They put the word macro on it because it means it focuses a little bit closer than the average lens in that class would. Um, And I've come to terms with that. But macro lenses, true macro lenses are always, always fixed focal length lenses. 
And so when you have a fixed focal length lens and you add the word macro to it, there is the inherent assumption that that lens is capable of one-to-one life size and this lens is not, and I'm angry at Canon to no end and I'll get off my soapbox. No, that's, that's, it's, that's actually a really good point. Uh, it is kind of misleading calling it that. That said, it is an F2 lens. It's at 85 millimeters. This is going to be for $600. I'll bet you this is going to be an absolutely gorgeous lens for portraits. It gives you, if you're on an R5 or an R6, you theoretically get eight stops of, of IS on this. Well, thing. and it's interesting though, because it says in, in here, if you're on an EOS R or RP, which do not have an in-body image stabilizer, the 85 millimeter F2 offers five stops of image stabilization. That's on its own. Right. Um, so it's five plus five equals eight. I'm not sure where the math uh, comes from in that regard. Uh, well, it's it's five in body. This lens mm-hmm. is five if you're on an R or an RP. But clearly, the 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 two way communication that they're using between the gyro sensors and the lens and the gyro sensors in the body, that combination is limited to eight. So yes, you're not going to get ten. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's but not this is you'll appreciate this. It's got it's got a nine. It's a nine blade lens. So supposedly we'll create a circular bokeh pattern, which should be really, really pretty. But again, not weather sealed, just so that people know. And yeah, this is STM again. It's not USM. It's it's not in their uh, their L series, but it does say um, uh, autofocus speeds are unlikely to be as fast as the company's nano USM focusing drive systems. Again, there's so many versions of USM. Um, the nano USM, I think, is their best. Um, but really, it's just different types of motors that they're sticking in these things that have different communication protocols through the lens, through the body and back and forth. Yeah. Now, um, you know, this lens is not weather sealed. It says in the article, you'd need to step way up to the F 1.2 version for that, which would be considerably more. I don't have the price of that one in front of me, but this it's expensive, 80, this 85 millimeter lens, five ninety nine. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, these are all so well priced and when you combine these with these teleconverters, the 1.4 and 2.0 RF teleconverters that they released, the teleconverters were actually, to me, shockingly expensive for, for compared to some of these lenses. It's 500 yeah, for the 1.4. 599 for the, yeah, yeah. That's, that's pricey up there. But but at the same time, um, you know, if, if you need a, a teleconverter for whatever reason, um, you want to have those optics, which have to be designed to be adapted to multiple optical systems and still perform admirably. Um, They have to be uh, more than just a jack of all trades. Otherwise, the image quality is going to suffer. And so there's probably some very slick engineering in in how those operate. Um, Well, of course, you got to have the light to do it too, because if you're using that 600 or 800 that are F11, you go to F22. Well, with the 1.4 and then, uh, or so that, you know, F11, that, F, F16 with the 1.4 and F22 with the, uh, the 2.0, uh, uh actually two X converter. The way I read the article, it actually mentioned F22 for both. Ooh, that would be weird because it's always been one stop of light lost for the, uh, 1.4 times teleconverters in every other context from every other company and, uh, two stops of light lost when you go to the two X converter, um, it seems like that would be very I must have difficult read it to wrong change then. that logic. Yeah. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, there's your prices for new Canon cameras and Canon lenses. Hey, Steve, uh, let's talk more about Canon. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah, this is canon week. And this the funny thing was, this is technically not related to the big announcement day last Thursday. No, no. In fact, I, I, I saved this story for when I knew I'd have you on. It was actually uh, announced on, uh, oh, my birthday, June 29th, is when this was posted on Petapixel. Um, Canon unveils the, the first SPAD image sensor with one megapixel resolution. Now that one megapixel resolution, we're talking we're talking uh, about differences between twenty and twenty four, and uh, arguing why one might be better than the other. Um, one megapixel is a ridiculous breakthrough for this type of technology that has existed before, um, but almost kind of in proof of concept, hard to utilize in in a real setting, uh, or at least a diverse type of setting. So, what is SPAD, Steve? So it's single photon avalanche diode. It's a type that, of a sensor. And, yep. and ca- again, as you said, it's one megapixel, which no, this is not going to show up in your DSLR tomorrow. I, this is so far over my head. So I'm just going to kind of go off notes that I made to try and help understand it. A normal CMOS sensor takes photons. metal oxide semiconductor, right? There we if go. We're going through the acronyms converts photons into electrons, and then those electrons are used to effectively calculate how much light is hitting each pixel. An SPAD sensor or SPAD sensor, each pixel actually has its own dedicated electronic element. I'm I'm talking per pixel. So uh, let's go back to CMOS for a second, though, because it has to go to how the sensors are read out, which on CMOS sensors is typically line by line, right? So an entire horizontal row, I think some of them might have been vertical at one point, but it's usually horizontal lines um, that, uh, that will read out all of that data at once. So that kind of all goes into a buffer, then you read the next line and so on and so forth. And, and that's the reason for things like uh, rolling shutter and um, right. we don't have a global shutter yet uh, in, in many contexts. And even that's a different technology altogether. But in this case, um, every, they call them pixels in their, uh, in, in their paper or their announcement here, but they're really photo sites uh, because they're not, unless it's a black and white sensor, and then I guess it's analogous to a pix- uh, pixel. I'm getting into the weeds, but that's what we do here. So every pixel has its own uh, structured counting, uh, collecting mechanism on a per pixel level. And it's a lot different. Per than the way photo site get- level and, and is designed in such a way that it only gets one photon per photo site. Well, yeah. So it, well, it'll get more than one photon per photo site. It gets, site, gets it, one photon, converts the one photon into a, a what they call, quote, an avalanche of electrons. And then that process is repeatable, uh, right. one would assume, looking at that. And so when you look at this, it, it, they also call it uh, photon counting because the, the singular photon, and I don't have a physics degree, but I'm going to just have to assume that energy doesn't come from nothing and that a photon contains enough energy to generate multiple electrons. I'm just, uh, I'm putting it out there that unless there's some My other hands process. Are up for those that can't see, I have yeah, no clue. Yeah, I, I don't know. So, uh, so here's the question though, because somebody out there, their brain is melting right now listening to this. <laughs> so these are far more sensitive than a CMOS, far more precise than a CMOS, why? Um, 
Well, there's a number of reasons uh, because you can count a single photon and have that registered as data, right? You can on a one megapixel resolution, it's square. So again, I'm making assumptions, probably a thousand by a thousand pixels. Um, and that means that every photon is counted. Uh, so for astrophotography, uh, for low light stuff, which could be industrial uses, it could be for documentary work in places that we've never been able to see before, uh, military applications, I'm sure there could be reasons for this. But there's also the added benefit of if you're counting individual photons, you have um, what I would consider to be unlimited dynamic range. Because you have zero, which is pure okay. black, and one photon, which is counted as a, as data, up to however many millions of photons, billions, trillions of photons, uh, all counted as data without clipping, unless it reaches a certain pace where it just it kind of runs together. Um, but MIT had, uh, this was a few years ago, uh, a prototype camera that probably used a similar technology, but the resolution was something like 100 pixels. Um and because you had to build the circuitry into every single photo site. And that was impractical for most use cases at the end of the day, although it makes a great uh, student experiment. But now, at this resolution, you can evoke meaningful data uh, and do a lot with it. Well, and you can, you can actually control each pixel's exposure simultaneously on each individual pixel and one of the things that they mentioned in the article was now, because you can control the exposure, because you can capture each photon individually, process them individually, convert them individually, that you can also calculate the distance of objects using time of flight measurements. So this would be applicable to you know, self-driving cars, et cetera. The problem, obviously, technology-wise is you can't scale it. I mean, it's at least as of right now. You can't scale uh, this to high pixel counts. Well, uh, but uh, the fact that we have this right now means it will get better in the future, so long as people buy it and there's a viable need right. for it. Um, but I, I was thinking in terms of, uh, and, and it would be fairly low resolution, mind you, but um, for uh, astronomical observations to to look for exoplanets around stars. One of the things that they've had to do is block out the light from the star by various means because it's so intense that it overwhelms the sensor for things around it. But if the sensor no longer has that problem because it has an infinite dynamic range and every single pixel is its own entity and is not dependent on uh, its neighbors being overexposed, then um, you could build satellites to find more planets out there in space with this same kind of technology. So they, they, they had an interesting quote in here, and that is, thanks to its ability to capture fine details for the entirety of events and phenomena, this technology holds the potential for use in a wide variety of fields and applications, including natural phenomenon, including uh, lightning strikes, falling objects, damage upon impact, uh, and other events that can't be observed with precision by the naked eye. So there's a future in this. Of course, there's no time to market or anything like that that's listed. No, but but if you can, <laughs> like even if you had one uh, megapixel per eye uh, in like some crazy military night vision goggles that could count photons, 
uh, I mean, yeah, th- th- there's potentially a good military contract involved in getting something oh, yeah. like this oh, out yeah. to market. I mean, uh, because if, if that's the case, then uh, through starlight or even in a room with boarded up windows, you still have stray photons of light coming in there. And if you can materialize that into actual imagery, um, then uh, you get yourself some sales. I agree completely. All right. Let's go on to our next story. We've got two more. We've got five in the rundown today. Oh, These this, next one, two- this one gets me, though. Uh, okay. So uh, at first there was H.264. Well, there was a lot of formats before then, but um, then there was H.265. And now there's H.266. Um, and Steve, if you want to run down memory lane, when we went from 264 to 265, which happened fairly recently, um, the comparatively of, in the scheme of things, it was fairly recently. Yeah. yeah uh, the amount of processing power required to encode and decode that they basically shifted. Um, it, it is a, a lossy compression, uh, but even if it wasn't, let's just assuming that you would get the same thing out the other side, you're just compressing it more, which takes more processing power to do so. And then to decompress it, it takes more processing power on the other end, especially at higher resolutions. It became quite an, uh, uh, just a, a difficult process for older hardware, let's say. Uh, it, everything was just kind of slogging through it. And, you know, I, my the first time I tried to work with H.265 hardware on my old phone, it just couldn't play it back at all. Um, and uh, now we're seeing the evolution of that into something else. H.266, um, also called V. VC or versatile video coding. So wh- why does this uh, why does this bother you, Steve? Well, okay, a couple things. First of all, H.264 is still the prevalent format that you're going to find out there. H.265 came out, promised a 50% reduction in files, and yet very few people have adopted it. Uh, you can't find it in a lot of places. For example, YouTube doesn't support H.265 and has no intention of doing so. They're, they have a codec of their own, VP9. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is supporting VP9. This is kind of the consumer problem in that we're fighting these these battles, but you can't upload H.265 to YouTube unless you first convert it to H.264. So part of the problem is the standard tech issue that we're, we are evolving so fast that we went from 264 to 265. Nobody adopted it because it hadn't been around long enough. Now we're going to 266. The question is going to be who's going to adopt this with any speed. I mean, there's big names behind it. Sony, Apple, Intel, Huawei, Microsoft, but Qualcomm. the biggest name uh, of note is Fraunhofer, who is the company who's that the is designer, putting, the main, who's, the main, who's the designer, and and Fraunhofer, uh, they, they, why do I remember them embroiled in a very important um, copyright case in the past? Maybe it had something to do with the MP3 format or something way back when. Um, Anyhow, uh, so they, they are not a standardization institution. No. They're, they're, they're a company. They're a tech company, and they, they're trying to build this out. But it's also like somebody such as Sony coming out with a proprietary media format. How could that ever go wrong, Sony, with your memory stick or your uh, UMDs for the Sony PlayStation Portable or just about well, anything and, they've and ever thought remember. of on their own? Early, early DSLRs that did video were limited on the time they could do video, and that was partially licensing in some cases. Exactly. So, so if, if these Fraunhofer, formats aren't open, 
and and my, my argument is formats like this have to be open. These are critical technologies to us moving forward. As an example, we talked on the on the R5 doing 8K video and nobody's really clamoring for it because right now there is no pipeline for you to deliver 8K video realistically or practically. But then, well, Steve, if you had H.266 and it was universally adopted because there was no licensing encumberment to that. Then 4K delivery, 8K delivery becomes much more logical. You've got more, you, you, you utilize less storage. You can more effectively use your bandwidth for delivery. Uh, possibly, depending on how it's done, better battery and less heat on your gear. A good example is mobile use, right? We're not getting great stuff for mobile. A lot of services like Netflix and Europe, et cetera, have lowered from 4K down or 10, 1080 down during COVID-19 to save on internet bandwidth. Well, and you can be- kick it back up. It's just the default that they've brought you down right. to, right? That becomes less of an issue for buffering, for smooth playback, for sending things to mobile if there truly is no visual difference, Right. The question is going to be licensing. When will new chips be out to do this? And will places like YouTube get on board? Well, and if YouTube is kind of stuck in their own proprietary area, um, and you really have to have some consensus uh, that involves YouTube. I mean, that's one of Google's biggest properties. And it's one of the uh, biggest places online where you watch content, where the general population watches content. We're not talking about uh, Twitch and Vimeo and all the other venues where people can download or stream. And there's no mention of streaming capabilities with this codec. There's really no mention of how much processing power it's going to take either. Uh, and I tried to look up um, a, uh, there's an overview that says, you know, it's 50% over H.265, also called HEVC. Um especially at higher resolutions, versatility, et cetera, et cetera, uh, contributions and administrative support and references, but there's no actual technical overview of what it actually does, how right. it does it, and how it can be implemented. You know, if you if you need to have, um, like, the latest processing, uh, you know, uh, in terms of computer processors, especially there's the ARM-based processors, there's, there's x86, is there special instructions that it's going to take advantage of, um, like the uh, AVX512 extensions on newer Intel and AMD processors, which would negate older processors in order to make it much more efficient. And those standards are constantly evolving as well. The latest um, uh, Ice Lake and soon-to-be Tiger Lake CPUs from Intel keep adding new extensions on specifically for video encoding capabilities which something like this might be able to take advantage of. But what we're doing here, when I'm just talking garbled acronyms, is we're saying that the hardware and the software have to be universally available and in everybody's hands before you have the ad, uh, adoption of that. But that and that's going to be five years away. But that doesn't necessarily drive adoption. So VP9 is actually open and royalty-free. It was developed by Google. Uh, it has a consortium behind it, but it was developed by Google, royalty-free, open. It's supported in almost every browser that's out there, except Apple Safari. Android, which, of course, is a Google product, makes sense. They've supported VP9 since KitKat, which is 4.4. But Safari on iOS, you know, on mobile or desktop, does not support it. Apple uses HEVC instead. 
And so the problem is, even when you have open standards, if you can't get everybody on board, then you have a problem. Now, in this case, you've got those big names on board, including Apple, including Huawei, uh, who is effectively an Android developer, right? Yeah. Uh, Even though you have these on board, again, if Google says, and here's the problem, it gets back to licensing. If it is not easily accessible to developers at no cost, as VP9 apparently is, then Google's not going to implement it. It's not going to be in root Android on a Pixel phone. It's not going to be in uh, or may not be in YouTube. Then you have a problem. You do. And uh, I'm glad that people are pushing the technological envelope here with this type of stuff. But I fear that um, they do so in order to to covet patents about it. Uh, And when you do that, it means that you're in it for your your own good. And you're going to charge people for it in some way, shape or form. And I understand you're in the business of making money. Uh, Most businesses are in the business of making money. But at the same time, if you can create a standard that you uh, that you are the shepherd of, um, that you are, but that was H.265, which, by the way, yeah. HEVC that Apple uses is H.265. That's what that is. Yeah. So H.265 was supposed to be that. And uh, and here we are, not using it, at least not predominantly. When we were talking again about the uh, EOS R5, it can shoot in H.265. You know, it's one of its modes. Right. Um, if you're not shooting raw, that's But you option, have to convert but- it. You can't download it from your c- camera and upload it to YouTube. You have to convert it first. These are the problems. And this is my problem is us as consumers shouldn't have to worry about this, right? These things need to be standardized. Uh, just like connectors need to be standardized, right? Well, and we didn't talk, um, uh, and uh, uh, Jordan Drake will uh, will maybe smile if he's listening to this, that the connectors, uh, the uh, EOS um, uh, R5 and R6 have micro HDMI ports on it to go all the way back to the beginning. And he was complaining in a video that, yeah, there's no way that like on a professional body and and I'm assuming when I say professional, it means that an 8k camera in 2020 can be classified as professional should ever be equipped with anything but a full on HDMI port because those tiny ports, those cables get tugged on and rigs. And, and, and if you have a, a port with a plug in it aside from maybe a headphone jack, um, and even those, by the way, those cameras have headphone and mic, Inputs right. Uh, but I've seen those jacks break too. Uh, but to have a very high density pin count in a very small area that something can easily be knocked or nudged out repeatedly, um, that's not going to bode well for, well, uh, but for the in Canon's defense, not that they need any defense for me, but in Canon's defense, they do not see, this is one of actually my complaints about Can- Canon is if you look at Nikon, the Nikon top series, like a D5, that's a pro body. But if you go below that to a D800 or a D750, Canon, in my understanding, considers those pro bodies. Yep. Canon does not. Canon has one pro body line, and that's the one series. They consider the five series to be prosumer. Well, the requirements- That's a fact. Uh, the, the requirements to register for CPS uh, require either a 1D or a 5D body. And, uh, Correct. And that- but I'm, what I'm saying is in their own internal 
recognition. They don't see those bodies as pro. They see them as prosumer. Well, that's silly because no wedding photographer is going to opt for a 1DX over a 5D. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So Again, that- like I said, that's one of my gripes with Canon, but I have had conversations with Canon specifically on that, and they'll say, no, no, no. Part of the reason, for example, the focus point doesn't move, uh, spot metering doesn't move with a focus point, is that's not a pro-level body. Uh, it's backwards mentality from Canon. I agree. It's, I uh, agree. Oh, and uh, they've been doing this. For, uh, I didn't see. I, I got to look up. Maybe did they actually include an intervalometer in these bodies? Have they finally come Ooh. to the sense Ooh, of actually doing that? Because everybody else has, and Canon is still trying to uh, shovel off a hundred and something dollar little uh, gadget to do it when all of the um, third party Chinese manufacturers can sell you one for 20 bucks. And they just haven't, they say, oh no, that, that's got to be a pro level feature or you have to pay for that extra pro level accessory to do that. And it's just that total old guard mentality that they just have to let go. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Anyhow. Let's this talk last about our story will be story. a good one to end on. Yeah. So, and you brought this one up to my attention um, on uh, DIY photography. Photographer bashed after sharing a uh, an quote obvious composite image uh, of a tornado. Now, I've seen some really good storm composites uh, over the years, and I've seen some legitimately real ones too, where uh, the person taking the photo would have to be crazy in one of those armored vehicles to survive the tornado strikes and so on before I would ever, and those vehicles often get destroyed too. So I, um, the images have power. And right. if it's a composite, old farmhouse with uh with this swirling uh storm that tornadoes are coming down from and it's just gonna rain hell um well a lot of them aren't real um and and that's okay i don't get me wrong i don't mind those composites existing because that's telling a story that otherwise would not be able to be told it's why i enjoy cinema i also enjoy documentaries and a lot of that stuff is still staged um but when when you have an image that you are claiming to be a single shot, um, you better not be lying about that, right? Because if you are, uh, there's this thing called the internet. Remind me of... to get back to the single shot thing. Okay. Go, go ahead. Um, there's this thing called the internet. There's a lot of really smart people out there that have done similar things and can find tells in the image as to where certain things should be or shouldn't be or how things have to connect together and how they might not even ever be able to in that particular scenario. Um, and they're going to call you out on it, right? Quickly. Yeah, really quickly. <laughs> the photographer is Aaron Groen and the photo is called Hold On. Go look it up. It's a really cool photo. I mean, I don't care how you made it. If we just go with the photo... Dude, really nice photo, really good job. Here's where the problem comes in. It's how you, when somebody asks you a question or comments, how you respond to those questions or comments is going to be analyzed over and over and over, both by people that are very knowledgeable, like like, uh, my friend just said here, but also by trolls. And it can go either way. You're going to get attacked one way or the other. How you respond is key. And here's the problem. 
some people commented very, very nice things to him. There's a quote in the, there's a screenshot in the article where somebody says, prize worthy, you just keep growing in your ability, et cetera, et cetera. And he answers back, this was the best tornado I've seen out of the six or seven I've seen now. He says things like, I go out every time it storms within a hundred mile radius of where I live, which is almost daily, or even just going through the raw files made me uncomfortable. I did better though this time, less fumbling with my camera in a panic. All of those statements indicate, don't say, that's why I said, remind me to come back to the single shot idea. All of those make people hear he went out and shot this photo, right? Yeah, and everybody, uh, everybody who comments is very clear in saying, I'm not attacking composites, right? And I'm not either here. Composites are amazing. But if you give people the impression that a composite was a single shot, whether you explicitly say, I went out and took this one photo, that is bad. Petapixel found a shot with an extremely similar extremely similar storm, but here's the reason I've got to read this one just, or or say this one, just being devil's advocate and why I say the single shot. What if I'm not defending him hypothetically? What if when people said to him, cool shot, and he starts talking about when I went out to this storm, it was the best one. What if this is a composite of five images, three images, whatever, And in that statement of this was the best storm I saw, he's only talking about the one shot in the composite of the storm. What if he took himself, he made the photos of the barn or house, Mm -hmm. of the lightning. I would hope he did. Um, Of the storm. He made each photo. And all he's saying is, yes, when I took this storm shot, it was the best one. He never says, I took this in a single exposure. But I did hear uh, from uh, from friends that were commenting on this that their comments were deleted. Um, they they say that in some of the things too that they were deleted. Yeah. So uh, you know if if you're trying to uh, yeah and you know what Facebook or whatever social media platform it's not a platform of free speech it's a private entity right. and you can delete comments on your stuff all the time and it just and never goes too. well. Uh, if, if people are, you know, uh, issuing some Nazi rhetoric, yeah, I'm not going to stand for that. That's you go away and delete it. And by the way, you're, you're blocked and reported and everything else. But there's so a I difference have- between deleting a troll and deleting somebody that has a, a valid question or critique that you should answer. Exactly. And, and I think that there needs to be transparency when you're doing, uh, composites and embrace that show people the entire process. You could start a whole YouTube channel on how you put them together and garner attention positive, uh, positively that way. But if you just, Steve, there was, um, uh, a, a female photographer from Australia. I don't know if you remember where I'm going with this one. But she did a lot of surfing photography. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember this. And uh, she, I, I was doing a reverse image search for some of my work that I thought might be stolen using Google Images and various tools. And I found uh, one of my images that had a star trail over my uh, uh, home city here in Barrie, Ontario. And uh, it was recomposited. Um, like, the, the foreground was my foreground. The stars weren't my stars, though. 
And this was done by some photographer in Australia. And when she was commenting, uh, or people were commenting, there weren't many comments because I guess she wasn't well known. But um, she, somebody asked, well, where was this? And she said, oh, exactly where it was. And it's obviously not where I am. Uh, right. So they're lying about that. And then I decided, well, what about the, if you're stealing my foreground and replacing the stars in it and doing some really, really bad cloning jobs at the same time, um, where'd you get the stars? And I looked it up and those stars were from another photographer who I haven't reached out for on this one because it's just too many things to do. Um, but I found the photographer that took those stars over Death Valley. And, and that was composited by a photographer half a world away and uh, they were claiming it as their own from two photographers that they stole it from. And this is the same thing. That particular incident that I'm describing that I discovered is not blowing up like this. I chose not to write a Petapixel article about it. But, right, right, right. Uh, but the, the same logic applies. You don't composite stuff together and then be untruthful about that process. When we were talking- Or, or evasive the, about it. Again, they, uh, yeah. to my knowledge- Okay, let's assume this is a composite because we're all pretty sure that it is. If it is a composite, you don't come out and allude to, even if you don't come out and say, no, 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 this was a single shot. If your comments allude to the fact that it was a single shot, you're not being transparent about it. Again, nothing wrong with doing a great composite. Oh, yeah. I, I, and I, I do Did them you all the time. The comments? Uh, on the Petapixel article or on Facebook? Uh, on the Petapixel article because it well, was some interesting- of them anyhow. A lot of people saying, why is this a story? It's still art. He's just trying to sell fine art. If you go look at his article, he sells fine art. It's like, okay, you can sell fine art, but you got to be transparent about it. Reminds you when somebody Peter Lick got caught up in something like that, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. somebody said, this is digital art. It's not photography. And one of the comments was, if you take two photos and composite them, that is photography. Well, arguably well uh, people have been doing that in the film era in dark rooms. In dark rooms, yes. Yeah, putting like uh, fake uh, groups of celebrities together at parties that were never in the same room together, probably from different eras. You know, this is not something new to the digital world of photography. But and at that this time, is not journalistic what he's doing. He doesn't well, have journalistic we integrity issues. Exactly. Unless he uh, claims journalistic integrity. Well, let's not even use the word journalistic. Let's just use the word integrity. Um, because that can be that, you know, if he's honest about what he's doing, then there's integrity there, even if exactly. it's not journalistic, right? And and I think that we're missing the boat on that. Um, but I got to reflect on my own work. I mean, I do a lot of focus stacking and I've got to fix issues where things don't line up. And that means I've got to clone little bits here and there to make sure all those pieces line up. And I'm using photos from all the same subject, but it can be a composite of up to a thousand separate images. Um, but my goal is to make it as close to what reality could possibly be. And right. I'm transparent about the entire process is how I went through from, uh, you know, finding the subject, setting up the camera, shooting the images, editing, and the final result at the end. And that is integrity in the sense that I'm owning the process. Exactly. And, and if you own the process, you will probably build a bigger fan base because people will want to know how you did it. And if you're honest about it and you tell people exactly how all of this stuff comes together, then you'll, you might lose respect from some people. You'll gain it from others and you'll find your community at the same time. 
even Peter Lick's team fought it for a while before they finally, you know, confirmed that yes, the shot that was in question in that case was a composite. And again, you got a beautiful shot here. Just say, yeah, I went and took this storm here and I took the lightning here and I put them all together to make a cool shot and I'm selling it as fine art and everybody will be okay. But as soon as you start deleting comments, it just never goes well. Well, and you know, I can even see in the very top image on this article on Petip- or on uh, DIYphotography.net, uh, and you can find the links to this uh, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Um, I'm looking at the top image, and there's some um, rolling layers of clouds on the left-hand side, just um, uh, hitting towards the roof of this uh, unusual barn. And the pattern at the bottom of those clouds, there's two layers of it. I am seeing multiple forms of repetition on that. Like it is clearly cloned an entire layer from one to another. And so there's a massive amount of cloning happening within that too. So even if it was a storm and a structure as two separate entities, that storm was nowhere near as boisterous as it's appearing well, to be. Well, those two layers are almost an identical duplicate copy. The whole layers. Yeah. It was like a row of clouds were just taken and duplicated and he didn't even try to hide. It's it's a circle, then one, a circle, then two, then a big bump. It- I, I, and, and you can see the same thing, Steve, on, on the side uh, to the right of the structure. <clears throat> there's like two dark little dots in the cloud that look very suspiciously similar. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not even like he's trying to hide it. So just mm. say it. So Yeah, yeah I, just own it. Yeah, but anyhow, he doesn't. And so there is the backlash of the internet uh, showing up. And again, I, I'm just going to say it one final time. I have no problem with this type of imagery. I encourage people to do this. Just don't pretend that it's something else. Right. Yep, yep I agree. All right, Steve. Well, before we get to our picks of the week, uh, what's new and exciting with you? I know we just did a critique show the other day, which was amazing with David Bergman as our as our third wheel, as our guest on that show. And it turned out fantastic. Um, And uh, you yourself, I know you got some home reno stuff going on. I don't know if you're shooting much these days. I'm not shooting a ton. We're looking at redoing our backyard. But the David Bergman thing, you know, Don and I do the critique shows for for my YouTube channel behind the shot. And we've been doing those once a month since probably December or so, maybe November, I think it was December. And the whole time we'd been talking behind the scenes that we're going to get a third voice in. Let's just get our system down first. And David Bergman, tour photographer for Luke Combs and Bon Jovi, a Canon Explorer of Light. He does a lot of stuff for Adorama, was our second third person to have on the show. And it went so well. I just really enjoyed that. I actually want to have him back because he was just amazing on doing that. And where so can we're doing that, find that? Uh, once a month. You can find him up at the Behind the Shot site. I'm doing uh, my normal podcast, Behind the Shot at BehindTheShot.tv. Uh, I've had a whole bunch of really good guests. I just had uh, Tara Lloyd, who is the photographer for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, on and I had Lindsay Adler on and I've had Roberta Valenzuela on recently. And when your book comes out, I want to have you back on to talk about your book and show some of your stuff. Um, yeah, so just a lot of that type stuff. I do my thing on Sundays. I think I told you this before, but with with Adam L. Micaias, it's actually Adam's project. I do a little version in the middle of this of my behind the shot type show. It's called the Raw Editing Challenge at raweditingchallenge.com. And basically what it is, it's a live music, usually a tour photographer, usually for younger bands that releases one of their raw images into the wild for people to edit. 
and you edit it and you tag it raw editing challenge. And we find them and we go and we talk to on Sundays at five, we all get together and party on Adam's Twitch channel where it's Adam and I, we have the photographer of that raw on. I do a little behind the shot on version on the shot. The photographer edits the shot live in front of everybody to see how this successful tour photographer edits. And then we go through everybody's edits. We just kind of browse the tags on Twitter and on Instagram to see how people edit it. And I got to say, that's been a ton of fun. Um, just doing, just playing, basically. Just having awesome. fun. Awesome. Uh, trying to have fun in this crazy world that we're in right now. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that kind of brings me to the picks of the week and trying to have fun, which is my pick. And uh, this was actually something that was presented to me as a birthday gift. Um, made in the former Czechoslovakia. Uh, it is uh, from a company called uh, Miopta. And this is a stereo 35 camera. Uh, people might be familiar with my love affair with stereoscopic 3D photography. Um, the Miopta Stereo 35. Now, it was interesting to me when, when I first uh, opened up this box because I didn't know what I was going to be getting. And I was so thrilled with what was inside here. It's, it's a camera, obviously. It's a 35 millimeter uh, film camera. But the camera itself, and I'm just opening it up right here, um, has kind of a blocky design. It's Oh, it's, interesting. It's kind of utilitarian. It's kind of retro what, 1960s look. Yeah, and I, I think it was in the 1970s or so when this was made. You can find them on eBay. Uh, oh, or, that's a film camera. It's a film camera. It's a film camera. Um, and so it, it says made in Czechoslovakia right on the bottom. Uh, so definitely it is not a current production. Um, but what really struck me is when I opened it up and looked in the back, it was weird because the film was loading sideways and the windows to load or to expose the frames were so tiny and off-centered and strange. Well, it turns out that what you do with this camera is you take a bunch of really, really small frames. It'll take 75 separate photos on a 35 millimeter frame, but it, for each photo that it takes, it's actually taking two of them. Each frame is used twice. That's what it's well, doing. Because it, it has two stereo uh, images, and that's so that you can cut them out from this little holder that it has. And they're offset. So it's like uh, one, two, three, four, five-ish aside uh, to find the matching pairs from one lens to the right. other. And everything kind of has that offset. Well, but the reason it's at the angle is so that they can effectively put two frames on top, two shots. So when, when, when the roll is in there, because I'm looking at the back of it here, the hole for the first exposure is up high on the film. Mm -hmm. The second exposure is low. As you roll the film through, you end up with the first one over the second hole and they stack. That's interesting. And, and it comes with this. Uh, I mean, if you get the whole kit, it comes with this little cutout thing that lets you just load the film in and stamp them out so that you can get them perfectly cut. Then what do you cut. do with them? Ha. What do you do with them, Steve? What do you do with them? <laughs> indeed. You make Viewmaster reels. I don't know if I can say the word Viewmaster because it's trademarked. You make Viewmaster-like reels, reels that you could put into a Viewmaster or similar device and pull a crank, and now you have a 3D reel of your family memories. 
and you can get those reels for almost nothing uh, compared to like the cost of film and developing the film, especially when you get 75 frames uh, per roll of 35 millimeter film. You can fill up a whole bunch of Viewmaster reels or Viewmaster like. There's no developing. You just put the film right in there. Well, I mean, if you're shooting slide film, then you process the slide film. You, go, you run it through the right. E6 process, and then you get that back if you don't want to develop it yourself. You punch them out, you stick them in the reel, and now you have your family memories, your vacations, whatever, in your own custom one-of-a-kind Viewmaster reel. And why the heck not? Because uh, I, I'm clawing back my sanity with projects like this. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yeah, I looked it up on eBay. There's one of the Meopta Stereo 35 cameras on for 150 US uh, or best offer. Uh, but you, if you don't have the little cutting tool, you'll drive your insanity up a notch when you try to cut them out. Uh, so there is one listed at for $337 uh, right now with a whole kit, sort of like what I have. I don't know if it has the box with it or not. Uh, and there was some completed listings that had been listed previously that, that had sold. So maybe just set up an eBay uh, a watch like to, to look for a phrase. Whenever that camera name comes up, see who's selling it and try to find one of them for a, re, uh, a decent price. It just, it feels like it's going to be a fun project that I can do with my daughter, and she's just going to absolutely love looking through that Viewmaster-like reel, and uh, it's fun, right? And, and we should fun. say the spelling, because I, I tried Googling it while you were talking. I spelled it wrong. It's M-E-O-P-T-A Stereo 35. That's right. Right. And all the documentation that I have here is in Czech, so I don't, I don't know how to read any of it. I figured out the camera well enough, uh, and uh, I, I've, I've got my first roll of film queued up and ready to go. Nice. Yeah. So my pick of the week is one that you may or may not need. It's more of a video tool, but I, I love the fact that this one particular part of it finally happened. And that is NDI tools for either Mac or Windows. And it's been around for a while. NDI is the ability for you to send a video signal signal across a network. So uh, just from one computer to another, or I use NDI quite often on my same computer to capture certain areas of the screen in a certain way or the part of this tool that I'm going to mention. And... NDI tool for Windows has extra stuff than the one for Mac. You get NDI test patterns in there and you get, uh, what else? There's something else in there as well for Creative Cloud or no, there was something else in there. I can't remember what now. But anyway, make a long story short for the Mac, there's one problem with video when you are doing all of the video conferences that we're all doing now. On a PC, it's fairly easy in software for you to get a signal out of your PC and use it as a virtual webcam. So if you're recording something or doing video editing or you're using OBS or something like that, and you're in a Zoom or a Skype call, to get that video that you're doing out of that software and as a camera into Zoom so that the people you're Zooming with can see your scene changes, etc. Did you just use Zoom as a verb? I could use Zoom as I'm Zooming. Yeah, I'm Zooming <laughs> with you right but, now. But yes, there we go. In a very unusual context. Yeah, it really. So... The problem is on a Mac, doing a virtual camera has been hard. So when I have a guest on, on behind the shot and I'm recording it in OBS, I'm doing scene changes. I'm putting the two of us side by side. I'm putting their image up. I'm putting them up full screen with a lower third. and They don't see any of it. They only see me 
on Zoom. They don't know when I've pulled up their photograph. So I always have to kind of say, okay, let's take a look at the photograph. Here we go. It's up now, that type of a thing. Well, NDI released NDI virtual input for Mac. Came out about, I think it was March. And I've been using it and it works fantastic. And what it is, is it's a virtual camera driver. So out of OBS, I can use the NDI tools to output everything from OBS as an NDI signal. I launch NDI virtual input, which shows up in my menu bar. I click it and it shows me all the NDI sources on my network. I choose the OBS output. Now it captures that and gives it out as a virtual webcam. I go into Zoom. I change my camera from my normal webcam, which is my 5D Mark IV, to the NDI virtual input. And everything that I do in OBS is suddenly visible to my guests. And it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, little tool uh, that I think if you do any video or if you're like me and you're doing a lot of streaming lately, you may find quite useful. So there you go. And uh, I'm just taking a look at it here. Um, is, Is there a cost to it? No, NDI tools for Mac is free. Now, there are advanced NDI tools that you can buy, uh, some of which are, you know, $1,000 or so. Like if I just look in the Mac App Store really quick, you have, you know, NDI scan converter is free, which lets you capture a monitor or a piece of your screen and, and serve it up as an NDI source. You can do signal generators, all kinds of stuff, but... Uh, webcam for NDI is $39.99. NDI outlet is $100. Uh, NDI recorder, so you can record an NDI source, is $20. Uh, NDI outlet multi is $1,000. I'm so, glad I mean, the some one of you're them are, Some of them cost. <laughs> yeah. The, the, big, the big ones that a real broadcaster would use, because NDI is fairly popular now, uh, those cost you money, but you can do a lot with NDI and NDI and OBS is free too. So, yeah. And you know, they've got, uh, uh lots of different, uh, I'm just going through just about everything here and, uh, they've got some, uh, for uh, new tech hardware. Um, they make the, uh, the TriCaster, at least I remember they were making the TriCaster. I haven't yep. heard, uh, from that in a little while. Didn't they used to make the video toaster for Amigas? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was new tech. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, some really cool stuff. uh, Totally, totally free for what I'm using it for. And uh, I think that people could, uh, you know, benefit from it. You know, speaking of this, by the way, one other thing, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think I threw the email away. I think it was, mm hmm, is actually the name of it. And I'll tell you right now because I'm going to type it in. Oh, and now I can't remember. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it's. Okay, it's mmhmm.app. They're signing up for betas now. And all it is, is it is it lets you turn your Zoom or Skype stream into like a, a newscast where you can do your PowerPoint presentation behind you. It cuts you out. You can shrink yourself. You can move yourself around. Sign up for the beta if you want to, but go watch the sample video that he does that's on that page. And when asked why they called it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he says something to the effect of, well, we need to be able to, you know, have a simple name that people can mention when they're tired or whatever it was. I forget the, de- the <laughs> word, but it's 
pretty cool looking thing, and the beta is open now. All right. Well, we'll add that as a second pick of couple, the week. A couple you, video Steve. things. For I, I appreciate that. I'm really going to have to take a closer look at that because some of those tools are going to be really helpful for me in the future. Um, and thank you for being on uh, Photo Geek Weekly. It's always a joy to have you on, Steve, especially when I have so many geeky technical topics that we need to drill down into. Um, and I think this takes the cake as the longest episode ever. Well, the pleasure was mine. I'm sorry that we went long, but I really enjoyed that. Those were some good conversations. And I hope everybody enjoyed listening to that. I've heard from some people that say it's like I'm a silent party to a conversation over a beer uh, yep. when you're talking about this stuff. And I love that people think that when they listen to this podcast. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you too, Steve. And uh, thank you. Have yourselves a great uh, morning, evening, night, whenever you're listening to this. Now it's time to stay in and shoot. <laughs>